Acadian Reminiscences, The True Story of Evangeline, by Judge Felix Voorhees, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Wayne Cook. Chapter 6. A Night of Terror and of Misery. The exiles are captured by the English soldiery. Driven to the seashore and embarked for deportation, they are thrown as castaways on the Maryland shores. The hospitality and generosity of Charles Smith and of Henry Brent. As darkness came, we cast a sad look toward the spot where our peaceful and happy Saint Gabriel once stood. Alas, we could see nothing but the crimson sky reflecting the lurid glare of the flames that devoured our Acadian villages. Not a word fell from our lips as we journeyed slowly on, and as night came its darkness increased our misery, and such was our dejection that we would have faced death without a shudder. At last we halted in a deep ravine shattered by projecting rocks, and we sat down to rest our weary limbs. We built no fires and spoke only in whispers, fearing that the blazing fire, that the least sound, might betray us at our place of concealment. With hearts failing, oppressed with gloomy forebodings, the events of the day seemed to us a frightful dream. Oh, that it had only been a dream, Pito. Alas, it was a sad reality. And yet in our wretchedness we could hardly realize that these events had actually happened. Our elders had withdrawn a few paces away from us to decide on the best course to pursue. For in the hurry of our departure, no plan of action had been decided upon, our main object being to escape the outrages and ill-treatment of the merciless and cruel soldiery. It was decided to reach Canada the best way we could, after which, after crossing the great northern lakes, our journey was to be overland to the Mississippi River, on whose waters we would float down to Louisiana, a French colony inhabited by people of our own race, and professing the same religious creed as ours. But to carry out this plan, Piton, we had to travel thousands of miles through a country barren of civilization, through endless forests and across lakes as wide and deep as the sea. We were to overcome obstacles without number and to encounter dangers and hardships at every step. And yet we remained firm in our resolve. It was exile with its train of woes and of misery. It was perhaps death for many of us, but we submitted to our fate, sacrificing our all in this world for our religion, and for the love of France. We knelt down to implore the aid and protection of God in the many dangers that beset us, and trusting in his kind providence, we lay down on the bare ground to sleep.
as you may imagine, Bertol. No one save the little children slept that night. We were in a state of mental anguish so agonizing that the hours passed away without bringing the sweet repose of refreshing sleep. When the moon arose, dispelling by degrees the darkness of night, we again pursued our journey. We made the least noise possible as we advanced cautiously, our fears and apprehensions increasing with every step. All at once our column halted, a death-like silence prevailed, and our hearts beat tumultuously within us. Was it the beat of the drum that had startled us? No one could tell. We listened with eagerness, but the sound had died away, and the stillness of night remained undisturbed. Our anxiety became intense. Was the enemy in pursuit of us? We remained in peaceful suspense, not knowing what danger looked ahead of us. The few minutes that succeeded seemed as long as a whole year. We drew close together and whispered our apprehensions to one another. We moved on slowly, our footsteps falling noiselessly on the roadway, while we strained our eyes to pierce the shadows of night to discover the cause of our fears. The sound that had startled us was no more heard, and somewhat encouraged our uneasiness grew less. We had not advanced two hundred yards when we were halted by a company of English soldiers. Ah, patrol, our doom was sealed. We were in a narrow path, surrounded by the enemy, without the possibility of escape. How shall I describe what followed? The women wrung their hands and sobbed piteously in their despair. The children, terrified, uttered shrill and piercing cries, while the men, goaded to madness, vented their rage in hurried exclamations, and were determined to sell their lives as dearly as possible. After a while the tumult subsided, and order was somewhat restored. The officer in command approached us. Acadians, said he, you have fled from your homes after having reduced them to ashes. You have used seditious language against England, and we find you here in the depths of night, congregated and conspiring against the king, our liege lord and sovereign. You are traitors, and you should be treated as such. But in his clemency, the king offers his pardon to all who swear fealty and allegiance to him. Sir, answered René Leblanc, under whose guidance we had left Saint Gabriel, our king is the king of France, and we are not traitors to the king of England whose subjects we are not. If by the force of arms you have conquered this country, we are willing to recognize your supremacy, but we are not willing to submit to English rule, and for that reason we have abandoned our homes to emigrate to Louisiana to seek there, under the protection of the French flag, 
the quiet and peace and happiness we have enjoyed here. The officer who had listened with folded arms to the noble words of Le Leblanc replied with a scowl of hatred, To Louisiana you wish to go, to Louisiana you shall go, and seek in vain under the French flag that protection you have failed to receive from it in Canada. Soldiers, he added, with a smile that made us shudder, escort these worthy patriots to the seashore, where transportation will be given them free in His Majesty's ships. These words sounded like a death knell to us. We saw plainly that our doom was sealed and that we were undone forever. And yet in the bitterness of our misfortune, we uttered no word of expostulation, and submitted to our fate without complaint. They treated us most brutally, and had no regards for either age or for sex. They drove us back through the forest to the seashore, where their ships were anchored, and stowing the greater number of our party in one of their ships, they weighed anchor, and she set sail. The balance of our people had been embarked on another vessel which had departed in advance of ours. Is it necessary, Breton, that I should speak to you of our despair when thus torn from our relatives and friends, when we saw ourselves cooped up in the hull of that ship as malefactors? Is it necessary that I should describe the horror of our plight, our sufferings, our mental anguish during the many days that our voyage on the sea lasted. This can be more easily imagined than depicted. We were huddled in a space scarcely large enough to contain us. The air rarefied by our breathing became unwholesome and oppressive. We could not lie down to rest our weary limbs. With but scant food, with the water given grudgingly to us, barely enough to wet our parched lips. With no one to care for us, you can well imagine that our sufferings became unbearable. Yet when we expostulated with our jailers and complained bitterly of the excess of our woes, it seemed to rejoice them. They derided us, called us noble patriots, stubborn French people and papists, epithets that went right to our hearts and added to our misery. At last our ship was anchored, and we were told that we had reached the place of our destination. Was it Louisiana? we inquired. Rude scoffs and sharp invectives were their only answer. We were disembarked with the same ruthless brutality with which we had been dragged to their ship. They landed us on a precipitous and rocky shore, and leaving us a few rations, saluted us in derision with their caps and bidding farewell to the noble patriots, as they called us. Our anguish at that moment could hardly be conceived. We were outcasts in a strange land. We were friendless and penniless, with the few rations thrown to us as to dogs. The sun had now set, and we were in an agony of despair. 
our only hope rested in the mercy of a kind providence, and with hearts too full for utterance, we knelt down with one accord, and silently besought the Lord of hosts to vouchsafe to us that pity and protection which he gives to the most abject of his creatures. Never was a more heartfelt prayer wafted to God's throne. When we arose, hope, once more smiling to us, irradiated our souls and dispelled, as if by magic, the gloom that had settled in our hearts. We felt that none but noble causes lead to martyrdom, and we looked upon ourselves as martyrs of a saintly cause, and, with a clear conscience, we lay down to sleep under the blue canopy of the heavens. The dawn of day found us scattered in groups, discussing the course we were to pursue, and our hearts grew faint anew at the thoughts of the unknown trials that awaited us. At that moment we spied two horsemen approaching our camp. Our hearts fluttered with emotion. The incident, simple as it was, proved to be of great importance to us. We felt as if Providence had not forsaken us, and that the two horsemen, heralds of peace and joy, were his messengers of love in our sore trials. We were not mistaken, Bitoll. When the cavaliers alighted, they addressed us in English, but in words so soft and kind that the sound of the hated language did not grate on our ears, and seemed as sweet as that of our own tongue. They bowed gracefully to us, and introduced themselves as Charles Smith and Henry Brent. We are informed, said they, that you are exiles, and that you have been cast penniless on our shores. We have come to greet you, and to welcome you to the hospitality of our roofs. These kind words sank deep in our hearts. Good sirs, answered René Leblanc, you behold a wretched people bereft of their homes, and whose only crime is their love for France and their devotion to the Catholic faith. And, saying this, he raised his hat, and every man of our party did the same. We thank you heartily for your greeting and for your hospitality so generously tendered. See, we number over two hundred persons, and it would be taxing your generosity too heavily. No one but a king could accomplish your noble design. Sir, they answered, we are citizens of Maryland, and we own large estates. We have everything in abundance at our homes, and this abundance we are willing to share with you. Accept our offer, and the Brent and Smith families will ever be grateful to God who has given them the means to minister to your wants, assuage your afflictions, and soothe your sorrows. How could we decline an offer so generously made? It was impossible for us to find words expressive of our gratitude. Unable to utter a single word, we shook hands with them, but our silence was far more eloquent than any language we could have used. Chapter 7. Assisted by their generous friends. 
Acadians become prosperous but yearn to rejoin their friends and relatives in Louisiana. The same day we moved to their farms, which lay nearby, and I shall never forget the kind welcome we received from these two families. They vied with each other in their kind offices toward us, and ministered to our wants with so much grace and affability that it gave additional charm and value to their already boundless hospitality. Bitton, let the names of Brent and of Smith remain enchased forever like precious jewels in your hearts. Let their remembrance never fade from your memory, for more generous and worthier beings never breathed the pure air of heaven. Thus it was, Bitton, that we settled in Maryland after leaving Acadia. Three years pass away peacefully and happily. During the whole of that time, the Smith and Brent families remained our steadfast friends. Our party had prospered, and plenty smiled once more in our homes. We lived as happy as exiles could live away from their fatherland, ignorant of the fate of those who had been torn from us so ruthlessly. In vain we had endeavored to ascertain the lot of our friends and relatives and what had become of them. We could learn nothing. Many parents wept for their lost children. Many a disconsolate wife pined away in sorrow and hopeless grief for a lost husband. But Pito, the saddest of all, was the fate of poor Emmeline Labiche. Emmeline Labiche? Who was Emmeline Labiche? We had never heard her name mentioned before, and our curiosity was excited to the highest pitch. Chapter 8 The True Story of Evangeline Emmeline Labiche Pito was an orphan whose parents had died when she was quite a child. I had taken her to my home and had raised her as my own daughter. How sweet-tempered, how loving she was. She had grown to womanhood with all the attractions of her sex. And oh, not a beauty in the sense usually given to that word. She was looked upon as the handsomest girl of Saint-Gabriel. Her soft, transparent hazel eyes mirrored her pure thoughts. Her dark brown hair waved in graceful undulations on her intelligent forehead and fell in ringlets on her shoulders. Her bewitching smile, her slender, symmetrical shape, all contributed to make her a most attractive picture of maiden loveliness. Emmeline, who had just completed her sixteenth year, was on the eve of marrying a most deserving, laborious, and well-to-do young man of Saint-Gabriel, Louis Archenault. Their mutual love, dated from their earliest years, had all agreed that Providence willed their union as man and wife, she the fairest young maiden, and he the most deserving youth of San Gabriel. Their bands had been published in the village church, the nuptial day was fixed, and their long love dream was about to be realized when the barbarous scattering of our colony took place. Our oppressors had driven us to the seashore where their ships rode at anchor when Louis 
resisting, was brutally wounded by them. Emmeline had witnessed the whole scene. Her lover was carried on board of one of the ships. The anchor was weighed, and a stiff breeze soon drove the vessel out of sight. Emmeline, tearless and speechless, stood fixed to the spot, motionless as a statue, and when the white sail vanished in the distance, she uttered a wild, piercing shriek and fell fainting to the ground. When she came to, she clasped me in her arms, and in an agony of grief, she sobbed piteously. Mother, mother, she said in broken words, he is gone. They have killed him. What will become of me? I soothed her grief with endearing words until she wept freely. Gradually its violence subsided, but the sadness of her countenance betokened the sorrow that preyed on her heart, never to be contaminated by her love for another one. Thus she lives in our midst, always sweet-tempered, but with such sadness depicted in her countenance, and with smiles so sorrowful that we had come to look upon her as not of this earth, but rather as our guardian angel. And this is why we called her no longer Emmeline, but Evangeline, or God's little angel. The sequel of her story is not gay, Petrov. And my poor old heart breaks whenever I recall the misery of her fate. And while our grandmother spoke thus, her whole figure was tremulous with emotion. Grandmother, we said, we feel so interested in Evangeline, God's little angel. Do tell us what befell her afterwards. Pito. How can I refuse to comply with your request? I will now tell you what became of poor Emmeline. And after remaining a while in thoughtful reverie, she resumed her narrative. Emmeline Pito had been exiled to Maryland with me. She was, as I have told you, my adopted child. She dwelt with me and she followed me in my long pilgrimage from Maryland to Louisiana. I shall not relate to you how the many dangers that beset us on our journey, and the many obstacles we had to overcome to reach Louisiana. This would be anticipating what remains for me to tell you. When we reached the Teche country at the Post Atacapa, we found there the whole population congregated to welcome us. As we went ashore, Emmeline walked by my side, but seemed not to admire the beautiful landscape that unfolded itself to our gaze. Alas, it was of no moment to her whether she strolled on the poetic banks of the Titia or rambled in the picturesque sights of Maryland. She lived in the past, and her soul was absorbed in the mournful regret of that past. For her, the universe had lost the prestige of its beauties, of its freshness, of its splendors. The radiance of her dreams was dimmed, 
and she breathed in an atmosphere of darkness and of desolation. She walked beside me with a measured step. All at once she grasped my hand, and, as if fascinated by some vision, she stirred rooted to the spot. Her fairy heart's blood suffused her cheeks, and with the silvery tones of a voice vibrating with joy, Mother, mother, she cried out, it is he, it is Louis, pointing to the tall figure of a man reclining under a large oak tree. That man was Louis Arsenault. With the rapidity of lightning, she flew to his side, and in an ecstasy of joy, Louis, Louis, she said, I'm your Emmeline, your long-lost Emmeline. Have you forgotten me? Louis turned ashy pale, and hung down his head without uttering a word. Louis, she said, painfully impressed by her lover's silence and coldness, why do you turn away from me? I am still your Emmeline, your betrothed. I have kept pure and unsullied my plighted faith to you. Not a word of welcome, Louis, she said as the tears started to arise. Tell me, do tell me that you love me still and that the joy of meeting me has overcome you and stifled your utterance. Louis Auchenot, with quivering lips and tremulous voice, answered, Emmeline, speak not so kindly to me, for I am unworthy of you. I can love you no longer. I have pledged my faith to another. Tear from your heart the remembrance of the past, and forgive me. And with quick step he walked away, and was soon lost to view in the forest. Poor Emmeline stood trembling like an aspen leaf. I took her hand. It was icy cold. A deathly pallor had overspread her countenance, and her eye had a vacant stare. Emmeline, my dear girl, come, said I, and she followed me like a child. I clasped her in my arms. Emmeline, my dear child, be comforted. There may yet be happiness in store for you. Emmeline, Emmeline, she muttered in an undertone as if to recall that name. Who is Emmeline? Then, looking in my face with fearful, shining eyes that made me shudder, she said in a strange and natural voice, Who are you? And turned away from me. Her mind was unhinged. This last shock had been too much for her broken heart. She was hopelessly insane. How strange it is, Pitot, that beings pure and celestial like Emmeline should be the sport of fate and be thus exposed to the shafts of adversity. Is it true, then, that the beloved of God are always visited by sword trials? Was it that Emmeline was too ethereal a being for this world, and that God would have her in his sweet paradise? It does not belong to us, Pito, to solve this mystery, and to scrutinize the decrees of providence. We have only to bow submissive to his will. Emmeline, 
never recovered her reason, and a deep melancholy set upon her. Her beautiful countenance was fitfully lighted by a sad smile which made her all the fairer. She never recognized any one but me, and nestling in my arms like a spoiled child, she would give me the most endearing names, as sweet and as amiable as ever. Everyone pitied and loved her. When poor, crazed Emmeline strolled upon the banks of the Tesha, plucking the wild flowers that strewed her pathway, and singing in soft tones some Acadian song, those that met her wondered why so fair and gentle a being should have been visited with God's wrath. She spoke of Acadia and of Louis in such loving words that no one could listen to her without shedding tears. She fancies herself still, a girl of sixteen years, on the eve of marrying the chosen one of her heart, whom she loved with such constancy and devotion, and imagining that her marriage bells tolled from the village church tower, her countenance would brighten and her frame trembled with ecstatic joy. And then, in a sudden transition from joy to despair, her countenance would change and trembling convulsively gasping struggling for utterance and pointing her finger at some invisible object in shrill and piercing accents she would cry out mother mother he is gone they have killed him what will become of me and uttering a wild unnatural shriek she would fall senseless in my arms Sinking at last under the ravages of her mental disease, she expired in my arms without a struggle, and with an angelic smile on her lips. She now sleeps in her quiet grave, shadowed by the tall oak tree near the little church at the Posa de Atacapa, and her grave has been kept green and flower-strewn as long as your grandmother has been able to visit it. Ah, Petol, how sad was the fate of poor Emmeline, Evangeline, God's little angel. And burying her face in her hands, grandmother wept and sobbed bitterly. Our hearts swelled also with emotion, and sympathetic tears rolled down our cheeks. We withdrew softly and left dear grandmother alone to think of and weep for Evangeline, God's little angel. Chapter 9 The Acadians leave Maryland to go to Louisiana. Their perilous and weary journey overland. Death of René Leblanc. They arrive safely in Louisiana and settle in the Atabacapa region on the Teche and Vermilion bayous. As I have already told you, Pito, during three years we had lived contented and happy in Maryland when we received tidings that a number of Acadians, exiles like us, had settled in Louisiana, where they were prospering in retrieving their lost fortunes under the fostering care of the French government. This news, which threw us in a flutter, engrossed our minds so completely that we spoke of nothing else, 
it gave rise to the most extravagant conjectures in the hope of seeing once more the dear ones torn so cruelly from us was revived in our hearts this news was deficient however in one respect it left us ignorant of the fate of those who like us had been exiled from saint gabriel that uncertainly cast a gloom over our hopes which marred our joy and happiness and increased our anxiety our suspense became unbearable and we finally discussed seriously the expediency of emigrating to louisiana the more timid among us represented the temerity and folly of such an undertaking but the desire to seek our brother exiles grew keener every day and became so deeply rooted in our minds that we concluded to leave for louisiana where the banner of france waved over true french hearts we announced our determination to our benefactors the brent and smith families and undismayed by the perils that awaited us and the obstacles we had to overcome we prepared for our pilgrimage from maryland to louisiana our friends used all their eloquence to dissuade us from our resolve but we resisted all their entreaties although we were deeply touched by this new proof of their friendship we disposed of the articles that we could not carry along with us and kept our wagons and horses to transport the women and children in the baggage and all we numbered two hundred persons and of these fifty were well armed and ready to face any danger we journeyed slowly the wagons moved in the center while twenty men in advance and as many in the rear marched four abreast ten of the bravest and most active of our young men took the lead a short distance ahead of the column and formed our advance guard our forces were distributed in this wise patrol for our safety as the road lay through mountain defiles and in a wild and dreary country inhabited by indians we secured as scouts and guides two indians well known to the brent family and in whom we were told we could place the most implicit confidence we had occasion more than once to find how fortunate we had been to secure their services we set out on our journey with sorrow we were parting with friends kind and generous friends who had relieved us in our needs and who had proved true as steel and loving as brothers we were parting from them lured with hopes which might prove illusory and when we grasped their hands in a last farewell words failed us and our tears and sobs told them of our gratitude for the benefits they had so generously showered upon us they too wept touched to the heart by the eloquent though mute expression of our gratitude their last words were words of love glowing with a fervent wish that our cherished hopes might be realized we set out in a westerly direction and we had soon lost sight of the hospitable roofs of the brent and smith families we again felt that we were once more poor wandering exiles roaming through the world in search of a home our journey Pateau, was long and tedious for a thousand obstacles impeded our progress we encountered deep and rapid streams that we could not cross for want of boats 
We traveled through mountain defiles, where the pathway was narrow and dangerous, winding over hill and dale, over craggy steeps, where one false step might hurl us down into the yawning chasm below. We suffered from storms and pelting rains, and at night, when we halted to rest our weary limbs, we had only the light canvas of our tents to shelter us from the inclemency of the weather. Ah, Pitot, we were undergoing sore trials, but we were lulled by the hope that far, far away in Louisiana, our dreamland, we would find our kith and kin. That radiant hope illumined our pathway. It shone as a beacon light on which we kept our eyes riveted, and it steeled our hearts against sufferings and privations almost too great to be borne otherwise. Thus we advanced fearlessly, I almost cheerfully, and at night, when we pitched our tents in some solitary spot, our Acadian songs broke the silence and loneliness of the solitude, and as the gentle wind wafted them over the hills, the light couplets were re-echoed back to us so clearly and so distinctly that it seemed the voice of some friend repeating them in the distance. As long as we journeyed in Virginia, barring the obstacles presented by the roads of a country diversified by hill and dale, our progress, though slow, was satisfactory. The people were generous and supplied us with an abundance of provisions. But when the white population grew sparser and sparser, and when we reached the wild and mountainous country which, we were told, bore the name of Carolina, then Pitot, it required a stout heart and firm resolve, indeed, not to abandon the attempt to reach Louisiana by the overland route we were following. During days and weeks we had to march slowly and tediously through endless forests, cutting our way across undergrowth so thick as to be almost impervious to light, brushwood where a cruel enemy might lay concealed in ambush to murder us, for we were now in the very heart of the Indian country, and the savages followed us stealthily day and night. We could see them with their tattooed faces and hideous headgear of feathers, frightful in appearance, lurking around in the forest and watching our movements. We were always on the alert, expecting an attack at any moment, for we could distinctly hear their whoops and fierce yells. Ah, Beto! It was then that our mental and bodily anguish became extreme, and that the stoutest heart grew faint under the pressures of some accumulated woes. Our nights were sleepless, and careworn and on the verge of starvation, we moved steadily onward, the very picture of dejection and of despair. Thus we toiled on, day after day and night after night, during two long, weary months on our seemingly endless journey, until, dispirited and disheartened, our courage failed us. It was a dark hour, full of alarming forebodings, and we witnessed the depression of our brother exiles with sorrow and apprehension. But a kind providence watched over us. God tempereth the wind to the shorn lamb, the hope of finding our lost kindred stimulated our drooping spirits. 
We had been told that Louisiana was a land of enchantment, where perpetual spring reigned, a land where the soil was extremely fertile, where the climate was so genial and temperate, and the sky so serene and azure, as to justly deserve the name of Eden of America. It smiled to us in the distance like the promised land, and toward that land we bent our weary steps, longing for the day when we would tread its soil and breathe once more the pure air in which floated the banner of France. At last we reached the Tennessee River, where it curves gracefully around the base of a mountain looming up hundreds of feet. Its banks were rocky and precipitous, falling straight down at least fifty feet. We could see in the chasm below its waters that flowed majestically on in their course toward the grand old Mississippi. It was out of the question to cross the river there, and we followed the roadway on its banks around the mountain, advancing cautiously to avoid the danger that threatened us at every step. That night we slept in a large natural cave on the very brink of the precipice by the river. At the dawn of day we resumed our march, and as we advanced, the country became more and more level, and after four days of toil and fatigue, we halted and camped on a hill by the riverside where a small creek runs into the river. We met there a party of Canadian hunters and trappers who gave us a friendly welcome and replenished our store of provisions with game and venison. They informed us that the easiest and least wearisome way to reach Louisiana is to float down the Tennessee and Nashisibi rivers. The plan suggested by them was adopted, and the men of our party, aided by our Canadian friends, felled trees to build a suitable boat. There, Pitot, a great misfortune befell us. We experienced a great loss in the death of René Leblanc, who had been our leader and adviser in the hours of our soul trials. Old age had shattered his constitution, and unequal to the fatigues of our long pilgrimage, he pined away and sank into his grave without a word of complaint. He died the death of a hero and of a Christian, consoling us as we wept beside him and cheering us in our troubles. His death afflicted us sorely, and the night during which he lay exposed preparatory to his burial. The silence was unbroken in our camp, save by our whispered words, as if we feared to disturb the slumbers of the great and good man that slept the eternal sleep. We buried him at the foot of the hill in a grove of walnut trees. We carved his name with a cross over it on the bark of the tree sheltering his grave and after having said the prayers for the dead, we closed his grave, wet with the tears of those who had loved him so well. My narrative has not been gay, Pitot, but the gloom that darkened it will now be dispelled by the radiant sunshine of joy and happiness. Our boat was unwieldy, but it served our purpose well. We stored in it our baggage and supplies, we sold our horses and wagons to our Canadian friends, and taking leave of our Indian guides, we cut loose the moorings of the boat. We floated downstream, our young men rowing and singing Acadian songs. Nothing of importance happened to us after our embarkment pitot. 
During the day we traveled, and at night we moored our boat safely and encamped on the banks of the river. At last we launched on the turbulent waters of the Mississippi and floated down that noble stream as far as Bayou Plaquemines, in Louisiana, where we landed. Once more we were treading French soil, and we were freed from English dominion. As the tidings of our arrival spread abroad, a great number of Acadian exiles flocked to our camp to greet and welcome us. Ah, Bitton, how can I describe our joy and rapture when you recognized countenances familiar to us? Grasping their hands with hearts too full for utterance, we wept like children. Many a sorrowing heart revived to love and happiness on that day. Many a wife pressed to her bosom a long lost husband, many a fond parent clasped in rapturous embrace a loving child. Ah, such a moment repaid us a thousandfold for all our sufferings and privations, and we spent the day in rejoicing, conviviality, and merriment. The sequel of my story will be quickly told, Pitot. Shortly afterwards we left for the Cheche region where lands had been granted to us by the government. We wended our way to our destined homes, through dismal swamps, through bayous without number, and across lakes until we reached Portage Sauvage at False Point. The next day we were at the post de Atacapa, a small hamlet having two or three houses, one store and a small wooden church situated in Bayou Teche, which we crossed in a boat. There the several Acadians separated to settle on the lands granted to them. You must not imagine, Brito, that the Teche region was, at that time, dotted all over like nowadays with rising farms and elegant houses and handsome villages. No, Brito, it required the nerve and perseverance of your Acadian fathers to settle there. Although beautiful and picturesque, it was a wild region inhabited mostly by Indians, and by a few white men, trappers, and hunters by occupation. Its immense prairies, covered with weeds as tall as you, were the commons where herds of cattle and of deer roamed unmolested save by the hunter and the panther. Such was the region your ancestors settled, and which by their energy they have transformed into a garden teeming with wealth. The Acadians enriched themselves in a country where no one will starve if he is industrious, and where one may easily become rich if he fears God, and if he is economical and orderly in his affairs. Pitro, I have kept my promise, and my tale is told. Your Acadian fathers were martyrs in a noble cause, and you should always be proud to be the sons of martyrs and of men of principles. Grandmother, we said, as we kissed her fondly, your words have fallen in willing and loving hearts, and they will bear fruit. We are now proud of being called Acadians, for there never was any people more noble, more devoted to duty, and more patriotic than the Acadians who became exiles, and who braved death itself rather than renounce their faith, their king, and their country. Finis. End of Acadian Reminiscences 
The True Story of Evangeline by Judge Felix Voorhees, Part 2.